Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash c slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Last call to fill out the Unchained 2020 survey to let us know what you want to see from the podcasts. What suggestions do you have to make Unchained and Unconfirmed better? Take a moment to fill out the survey to let us know what you would like from the show. The link is in the show notes, or you can just go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. And crypto.com has offered our survey respondents a chance to win a metal MCO visa card. And crypto.com will stake these cards indefinitely. 10 lucky winners will enjoy card benefits, including free Spotify, free Netflix, and 3% back on all spending. Plus, they'll earn extra interest on their crypto deposit and more. Thanks, Crypto.com. Again, take the survey now, surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchanged 2020. One last thing, Unchained is hiring. I'm looking for a remote editorial assistant to start working later this summer. This role handles numerous editorial tasks from booking guests to proofreading to social media and deals with everything from the show itself to the show notes to the newsletter. If you love crypto and have journalism experience, get in touch. I have a link to the job posting in the show notes and the listing is also available on my website. And there it explains what you should send in and how. Diversify is the first self-custodial exchange that can match the leading centralized cryptocurrency platforms. No more sacrifices. You can enjoy high speeds, deep liquidity, privacy by default, and low fees directly from your private wallet. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Need cash but don't want to sell your crypto? Use Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and withdraw funds today, starting from only 5.9% APR. Create an account at nexo.io. Today's guest is Robbie Greenfield, the CEO of Emerging Impact and the former head of social impact and diversity programming at Consensus. Welcome, Robbie. Hey, good good to be here. The wider discussion on racism in the U.S. has also been part of the conversation in the crypto community in the last couple of weeks, and you've been pretty vocal about your views. Um, before we get into exactly what they are, why don't you give us your background in crypto? How did you get into this space, and what have you been doing? Yeah, absolutely, and, and thank you for having me. Um, so I, I got into the crypto space uh, around 2011, um, and by way of one of my um, friends, Kennard, at the University of Michigan, and uh, at the point, at that point, it was really just a conversation about Bitcoin. And I was actually very critical. I was like, why, why do we need this? Um, you know, what, what is the difference between, you know, this, you know, kind of store of, store of value at the time and gold? And 
Um, but somehow I used the only money that I had at the time, which was around $1,600. I think Bitcoin was at like $40 and just, just put in and actually did a lot of trading amongst a lot of the varsity athletes at the University of Michigan. Um, and because of my engineering background, I started to transition after the 2013 crash and was like, okay, maybe I should do the more technical things on here uh, after that happened. Um, and since then, you know, have been, you know, supporting the efforts of the development of a lot of blockchain practices, um, primarily at Cisco at first with the IoT Trust Alliance, um, uh, brokering our relationship with IOTA, and then most recently with uh, Consensus and what I'm doing with Emerging Impact in the social sector. All right, so we'll dive a little bit more into that history in a second, but in general, why don't we just start with the topic that's been um, discussed a lot these last few weeks. So in general, how would you say the crypto community handles issues of diversity and inclusion and racism? Yes, um, unfortunately poorly. And you would think because the average age in the, the crypto community is, is relatively low. I mean, we have a very, very young and vibrant community. And you would think with that, a lot of the generational angst, um, you know, with regards to dealing with diversity and inclusion that you may see in traditional tech uh, wasn't inherited, you know, by a lot of blockchain companies. Because a lot of them are, are quite literally led by, you know, 20-something, 30-something billionaires. <laughs> Um, but unfortunately that, that hasn't been the case and that, um, you know, level of libertarianism and, uh, maximalist, uh, in terms of decentralization hasn't followed into the social sphere that affects, you know, marginalized communities, not, not in recruiting, not in uh, funding when it comes to startups, um, and not in, um, you know, developing influencers across the space when we see the same set of speakers at, you know, at every conference around the world, you quite literally see the same people around the world in general uh, when it comes to the community. And that's a, an area where I think we're a bit hypocritical to espouse how we're going to systematically change, you know, governance, finance, all these elements of society, but we're not looking at some of the issues in our current system uh, that need to be rectified. Um, even going to looking at the token taxonomy frameworks behaviors and how um, overdraft, right, is, is, is a listed token behavior. It's like, no, that's, that's a systematic way to tax people who are poor who can't pay for, um, you know, their overdrafted balances. So it, it really is kind of structurally embedded, unfortunately, in, in, in how we operate. So you wrote this really great essay in Coindesk this week, and I'm just going to quote some select portions of it, but you can also, you know, add to uh, whatever I've said to flesh out your views. But some of the lines that really stuck out at me were things like, you said, quote, the crypto community is conveniently selective about what aspects of society it wants to change. You also called out some racist posts that were retweeted by Nick Zabo, who some people surmise could be Satoshi Nakamoto. And you you were not the first person on Twitter to uh, point these out. There was somebody else. I don't know if you saw this. He screenshotted over the course of a few years, yeah. a number of posts. And, um, and you know, I have to say as a journalist who used to follow Nick Zabo, I had noticed that as well. And I actually stopped following him because the, the vibe from those posts was so toxic. <laughs> I like couldn't take it yeah. anymore. Um, but I, I do, yeah, feel somewhat um, amazed at my blind spot. Like, why didn't I think to do a story on that? I just was like, oh, this guy's annoying. Like, turn this off. <laughs> um, 
Uh, but anyway, the other quote that I liked from your piece was you said, quote, the truth is most major blockchain companies and crypto personalities refuse to publicly stand in solidarity against police brutality and racism, fearing the retribution of white supremacist trolls more than valuing the lives of their black colleagues, friends and employees. So now that you've been pretty vocal about your views, what has the reaction been from the wider crypto community? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I've certainly got my dose of vitriol. Um, I'm, I'm used to this, right? You know, this is not, you know, being being a black, you know, man. This is not my first encounter with racism or the discussion about racism or the reaction to the discussion about racism, um, you know, at, at all. Um, and, and and it was interesting, right when Coindesk had post, posted that on uh, on Twitter. Uh, almost immediately, right? We saw all these different types of arguments that are typically used in this conversation, like math has no race, or you know, are you, you but heard about something, or what about black and black crime, which, which somehow works its way in, into any discussion. I don't, I'm not sure how. And, and so I wanted to take a very logical approach to not only calling some of these things out in terms of the level of courage um, that any particular brand or influencer needs to have to do this, but also to, to, to look at the statistics, right? You know, black on black crime is, it's a myth. It's no more prevalent than white on white crime or Asian on Asian crime or Hispanic on Hispanic crime. Crime is more clo- closely correlated with poverty. And typically it happens between people who know each other. And because America has incredibly segregated neighborhoods, most likely a crime is going to be between two people of the same ethnicity. Um, and, and the, the same is true in terms of, um, the motivation, right. Of a lot of these protests, I think that's confused. Um, and, and all this to say that you take these different arguments that have been strategically and politically used by, you know, what is now called the alt-right, but is, is really just, you know, white supremacists. Um, and, and it changes the topic to people, no one, not, not, not you know, black people, Asian people, anyone, no one should be. Um, you know, killed or murdered from unnecessary police brutality, particularly when they're unarmed. And we see other developing and developed nations, you know, see unarmed police forces to stop that. Um, But in addition, this is not a political issue. It's a human rights issue. Um, And it's an issue of a systemic imbalance that existed long before we were able to record the death of George Floyd or, um, you know, Trayvon Martin, right, which happened almost 10 years ago. Um, and until we confront that in any in a meaningful way, not just via Twitter, but through policy, both in our companies, but also in terms of legislature, uh, we're, we're not going to have we're, we're going to keep on having this 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 conversation. And, and my fear is, is that the only turning point will be when there is a mass protest and pe- people actually get killed in the protest, um, much like we see in Egypt and in Lebanon and in Venezuela. Right. And oftentimes, you know, Americans kind of take the moral high ground when looking at those situations from afar, not realizing that our society is slowly devolving into the same uh, type of uh, brutalized uh, protest. All right. So in a moment, we're going to discuss more about diversifying the crypto space. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve both of these goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also allows you to earn up to 8% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. 
Get started at Nexo.io. Diversify has partnered with Starkware to bring serious traders a speed and security advantage without sacrificing the cornerstones of profitable trading. They enable high-speed UI or API access to deeply liquid order books, instant execution of 9,000-plus trades per second, as well as rapid withdrawal certainty for when you need to move fast. If you're an arbitrage, algorithmic, or day trader, you can capitalize on the best of centralized trading while preserving complete control of your assets 24-7. Want the edge? Head to D-E-V-E-R-S-I-F-I.com and learn more today. Back to my conversation with Robbie Greenfield. I actually want to ask you about this one tweet storm that you wrote, and it began, cryptocurrency would not exist without black yeah. people. Yeah. Can you explain <laughs> yeah. to people what it is that you wrote there? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And this was a talk that I did at Afrotech a while, and I was even ignorant of it. So we talk about you know tokenizations, obviously, you know, uh, a continuation of the evolving form of how we transfer value, right? And that's from a lot of different, different, you know, things, different peoples, different cultures, right? So it's not to say that, you know, black people like are the sole reason why cryptocurrency exists, but it is to say that the prevalence of fiat currency only came into fruition through the, the U.S. government. Um, and in two particular historical instances made this happen. One, uh, the funding of um, Union troops, right, during the Civil War, um, who desperately needed to defeat the South at the time, which was one of the economic centers of the world. I don't think people realize how much fuel the cotton and textile industry uh, and the loan industries that came off of that um, globally uh, really created the economy that we have today um, and created the financial centers like New York. In fact, back then, there were more millionaires per capita, I believe, in Mississippi than there were in New York. Um, and, And this has changed over time. And that experiment, right, that Abraham Lincoln took um, in leveraging fiat currency, which was, you know, more just broadly understood as we all agree this has value rather than being backed by gold or silver like the pound, um, led into the Nixon years where we quite literally came off of the gold standard after establishing it. Um, and, And this is the history, right, of how money has evolved and how tokenization, when we see the tokenization of assets, um, and, and even you know stable coins in terms of um, store of value money, uh, th- that's the evolution that has followed. And that some of the people, the first people who were securitized were also black people. Um, we look at Monticello and, and Thomas Jefferson. That was funded from a loan collateralized by slaves and also built by slaves. Um, so the wow. complexities in terms of how finance has evolved is very deeply intertwined into this systemic racism, you know, that, that I comment on and that people, you know, unfortunately um, push off as or minimize as, oh, well, they said the N-word or, oh, well, um, they didn't let this person into, you know, this apartment complex, right? And, and it's really a lot more than that. I would actually love to be called the N-word and have systemic racism gone um, and, and, and I have this superficial racism, right, exist. I, I can deal with that mentally and emotionally. Um, you know, but but the constraints that the systemic aspect has um, quite literally change people's life trajectories in terms of whether they can be an entrepreneur, whether they can be hired, how much access to credit they get, and, 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 and you know how that affects their livelihoods. 
Yeah, I don't know if people know this story, but um, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey often talks about this in his life trajectory where um, his parents had been looking for a home in a suburb of New Jersey that had good schools and it was considered a white neighborhood. And they kept being told that these houses that they thought were in sale were not available. And this organization, I can't remember, um, they, I, they must have just worked on like fairness in housing or something, um, got white people to go as decoys after they had gone to these houses yeah. and found that the houses were suddenly available and this kept happening. And so eventually they picked the house they wanted. And um, when they showed up to sign the papers, you know, the sellers were surprised because they thought it was going to be a white couple buying it. Yeah. And that was how Corey ended up at, you know, in this great school district. Of course, he like went to Stanford, was a Rhodes Scholar, went to Yale Law School, now is a U.S. Senate. I mean, he's like, you know, super successful. But yeah, that's like just one story about um, how systemic racism, or in that case, the um, the the fight against it, or or winning the fight against it, in one instance, did have a positive outcome. All right, so let's talk about what you did at Consensus in regards to social impact. Um, oh. You know, what problems were you trying to resolve there, and how can cryptocurrency or blockchain technology help? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this was we started this in 2017 with my colleagues uh, Vanessa Gray and Ben Siegel, and at, at the time, the social sector is about a year behind the commercial sector when it comes to the usage of any emerging technology. And so, in 2017, that was their blockchain 101 year and coalition building year. Um, but then, after in 2018 and subsequent years, we started to see. Um, really, the need and the yearning is to want to leverage this technology in the field. Um, and we covered a variety of use cases, including um, developing tamper-proof evidence in Syria um, to convict um, people of war crimes in the International Criminal Court. We use the same um, you know, basic approach in terms of the technology with sexual assault forensic kits, um, which domestically are also treated terribly. Um, and a lot of those cases um, don't reach any meaningful uh, agreement or resolution after sometimes decades. Um, and then also we focused on cash assistance programs. Um, we see this a lot now, and this is becoming incredibly prevalent today because of COVID-19. So, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with cash assistance programs, this is any form of cash benefit that you get from an NGO or a government entity. So that includes unemployment, that includes food stamps or supplemental nutritional assistance programs like SNAP or EBT. Um, and, and it also includes a lot of refugee cash assistance uh, programs that we see in California and in New York. Um, and then outside of that, um, a lot of climate change initiatives in terms of how we can create more equity and balance uh, and accountability within uh, carbon offset markets. Um, and that's, of course, been a huge thing because around the end of 2019, we saw the Amazon forest, California and Australia all on fire at the same time. Um, and now L.A. is on fire right now. Um, and a lot of these underlying systems have um, had a lot of fraud in it. Etc. Um, so, you know, that, that's been kind of our body of work. We've worked with the United Nations, World Food Program, uh, World Wildlife Fund, Red Cross, Oxfam International. And in our role as emerging impact, given that consensus has started to focus on enterprise finance, we've continued that work um, and really focus on expanding a lot of these pilots to, to impact change. And 
you know, what would you suggest are some good ways to use this technology to address this specific issue here in the U.S. that we've been yeah. discussing? And, you know, I know that you listened to the interview I did with Stephen Mackey last yeah. week. And at one yeah. question I asked him, uh, I just want to ask it of you as well. Um, I know you saw that Coinbase survey where they um, did ended up with a report called Black Americans and Crypto. And one of the most interesting parts of it, to my mind, was that Black Americans showed more interest than any other group in cryptocurrency. And, you know, for that reason, you would expect to see kind of that they're working in crypto in a higher proportion uh, than they are in the general population, but that's not the case. Yeah. So I wondered, you know, <laughs> yeah. why you thought Blacks were underrepresented in underrepresented in crypto, what we can do to bring them in the fold, but also how we could, this is a three-part question, how we could use cryptocurrency to um, address issues of racism in the U.S.? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's certainly a loaded question, but one that I think um, starts with economic opportunity and then ends with, you know, um, entrepreneurial opportunities as well. So in terms of, you know, education, I think it's one understanding what's the difference between being a normal engineer and a blockchain engineer. There are many black engineers. You see Nesby Society is one that houses many across all the colleges um, within the U.S., um, and of course, a lot of other organizations as well, like Black Girls Code, that find people uh, when they're younger and try to teach them these technical skills. But a lot of those programs are lacking emerging technology aspects so that, that people can leverage those skills, which is 90% sp speak, spoken from somebody who has created blockchain applications. It's 90% of the skills you need. And just understanding the basics of, okay, what about smart contracts, solidity, and how does that play into developing an application? So that way you can at least be a great candidate if you're not an entrepreneur to work at a Coinbase or a Consensus or a Securitize. Um, and, and many of those organizations constantly say that they have a need um, for engineers. Uh, I think the, the second thing um, is exposure. Um, so the black community I found is extremely financially conservative because we typically, you know, on average don't have the means um, to, to freely invest, right? We don't have a lot of free capital that we can just put toward a project or put toward cryptocurrency. And letting people understand some of the basic things that we were all learning when we got into it, that you don't have to buy one whole Bitcoin, right? And, and spend $10,000 or one whole Ether. You can put $10, you know, via, via Coinbase and, and just give yourself that comfort um, that's needed, even if you don't make a million dollars off of it, right? In the, in the first, you know, 12 months or so. Um, but, but it also gets them to understand, okay, you know, how, how do these wallet, you know, things work and how do all these ancillary services that re revolve around tokens operate? And, and then the third is um, entrepreneurial opportunities. And this is where I think it's less of a yearningness to understand how blockchain technology can map to problems because I've seen many founders of colors do that very, very well, uh, both in the United States, but also in countries abroad. Um, the DevCon Scholars program that we did with Ethereum Foundation, I think, was a perfect highlight on how well and how smart a lot of these individuals are. But the issue is, is that the access to capital is just not there. Um, and we have to break this, this stereotypically successful founder from just being a white male to being other people. I understand that the venture capital community is very much focused on protocols. But I think another unattended space that I've seen working in emerging markets is getting everybody else, you know, you know, involved, right? How do you create mass adoption in low connectivity or low literacy environments? Because at the end of the day, when we talk about mainstream adoption and many blockchain applications do, um, it's almost as if we're only talking about the West. 
and not talking about billions of people, right, that could use the same simple services that we've created here um, in extremely powerful ways. Um, and, and what does that mean for a company that, that, uh, that unlocks that potential? I'd imagine they'd be valued, you know, pretty well. Um, you know, so, but that, that, that focus hasn't you know, existed. Um, so those kind of three things are, are, are what I've seen and, and why I found it so important uh, to write that article to say that no, you know, this has, this has to stop. We can't be more, we can't be passive about it. I mean, 2020 has been a hell of a year and, you know, I think it's the year for that particular message <laughs> to come through with, with many others. All right. Well, I'm so glad that you came on the show. Where can people learn more about you and Emerging Impact? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so everything about me and Emerging Impact, the same place, um, just emergingimpact.com. If you want to see the work that we've done um, by consensus, you can just Google consensus social impact and you'll see all the projects and the case studies associated with them and uh, love to work partner uh, and help uh, anyone that we can. So, Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Appreciate it. Don't forget, stay tuned for the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you can now get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. Lastly, you could buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. Download the Crypto.com app today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, crypto's love-hate relationship with analytics and compliance software heats up. The block reports that more than a year after Coinbase's controversial acquisition of Neutrino, the cryptocurrency exchange wants to sell blockchain analytics software to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency and the IRS. Neutrino was an Italian IT firm whose software had been used to spy on citizens, and the Coinbase purchase set off a delete Coinbase campaign. While the government grants have not been awarded yet, a Coinbase spokesperson did tell the block, quote, The information offered in Coinbase Analytics has always been kept completely separate from Coinbase internal data, noting that it is sourced from online publicly available data. The response on crypto Twitter can basically be summed up with this tweet. You can't buy bad press like that, seriously. Consensus is also getting into the analytics game with the launch of CodeFi Compliance, a compliance and analytics suite that focuses on DeFi and Ethereum and can track up to 280,000 tokens. The crypto Twitter take, I thought the main point of DeFi was not to have KYC. Consensus said this would not reveal personally identifiable information. Meanwhile, Chainalysis introduced investigation and compliance software for Dash and Zcash. While these are privacy coins, Chainalysis explains that only 9% of Dash transactions use its privacy feature, Private Send, and that techniques used to analyze coin join transactions on Bitcoin can be used on Dash. Meanwhile, only 0.9% of all Zcash transactions are completely shielded, so Chainalysis can still provide information on more than 99% of Zcash activity. Next headline. Fidelity says that 80% of institutional investors are interested in digital assets. A survey of 800 institutional investors in the U.S. and Europe found that almost 80% are intrigued by digital assets, with 36% already invested in the market. 
Broken out by market, Europe seems to be more bullish, as only 27% of U.S. institutions, including pension funds, family offices, investment advisors, and digital and traditional hedge funds have invested in cryptocurrency, which is up from 22% a year ago. Additionally, the exposure of U.S. investors to digital asset futures jumped from 9% to 20%. Meanwhile, Bact and Galaxy Digital have teamed up on a white glove service for institutional investors, investors wanting to buy and store Bitcoin. Next headline, Ethereum addresses top 100 million in number. The Defiant reports that the total number of unique Ethereum addresses surpassed 100 million on Tuesday. Since many users have multiple addresses and some addresses can be created by trading bots, reporter Camilla Russo points out that the total number of Ethereum addresses with a non-zero balance is 40 million, while daily active addresses is about one one-hundredth of that, at 400,000, down from highs of around 700,000 at the peak of the ICO bubble in January 2018. Next headline, Bitmain drama continues stopping shipments. The power struggle at Bitmain continues, with perhaps ousted founder Mikri Jean stopping a Shenzhen subsidiary of Bitmain, where he is still a director, from shipping Bitcoin miners to clients. The chaos has caused many clients to switch to Bitmain's biggest rival, MicroBT. Meanwhile, there's a new update to the saga over the official seal, which is used to make company actions binding. Jean and the co-founder with whom he is battling, Jihan Wu, each claim to have the company's official seal. On Wednesday, Bitmain's WeChat account appears to have been taken over by Jean, who may have the new seal, uh, but the Bitmain website claimed that all the posts made afterwards were fake. Then on Thursday, the official WeChat account published another notice with the new seal, ordering all Bitmain employees to go back to the Beijing office under threat of losing their salaries. Next headline. Microsoft's Bitcoin-based identity tool Ion goes live. With the coronavirus highlighting the possible applications for blockchain-based identity, Microsoft's decentralized identity tool Ion, which is anchored in the Bitcoin blockchain, launched in beta. Coindesk reports that it is one of a number of tools being fast-tracked to help with contact tracing, health certificates, and other types of coronavirus response. However, some in the crypto community find such applications potentially dangerous. Harry Halpin, CEO of privacy tech startup NIM, said, quote, Governments need to establish identities of who owns these keys. So they say, okay, we'll have an open standard, call it decentralized, and make it mandatory. Next headline. The Human Rights Foundation launches a Bitcoin development fund. HRF launches a fund to support developers who are, quote, making the Bitcoin network more private, decentralized, and resilient so that it can better serve as a financial tool for human rights activists, civil society organizations, and journalists around the world. The first recipient of a, fun of a gift from the fund is Chris Belcher, who is working on coin swaps, which makes it harder for authorities to trace Bitcoin transactions. HRF is also crowdfunding to further support Bitcoin development at hrfdevfund.fundraise.org. Gifts given at that address will go toward individuals or teams working on improvements to the Bitcoin network. Next headline. Why EIP-1559 is the biggest change to how users bid for block space. 
Darabit had an interesting post this week analyzing a new Ethereum improvement proposal, saying that it would be a significant change for users, miners, and wallet providers, and would be the largest change to how users bid for block space on any of the major blockchains. First, it proposes that, as much as possible, all transactions should pay the same fee rate, with users deciding whether to pay the fee or not, and not how much to bid. Second, it would allow for more variation in block size to account for the fact that demand for block space fluctuates. This would also allow some blocks to be larger and others smaller while enforcing an average block size limit. Third, it would untie network security from transaction fees by instead burning transaction fees and incentivizing miners to a perpetual block subsidy. Finally, by enforcing that transactions burn a specific amount of ETH, it would also help preserve the monetary premium of ETH. Next headline. Well, oh, no, this is fun bits. Fun bits! <laughs> the second Winklevoss movie, Bitcoin Billionaires, is coming to the big screen. There will be a movie made about the Winklevoss twins, and it's based on the book Bitcoin Billionaires. In case you missed it, be sure to check out my interview with author Ben Mesrich, who, by the way, also wrote the book that became the film The Social Network. The Bitcoin Billionaires movie will be co-produced by Stampede Ventures and Tyler and Cameron themselves. Thanks for tuning in to learn more about Robbie and Emerging Impacts. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. Don't forget, you can now watch videos of the recordings of the podcast on Unchained and on its YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.